Well, there is something very beneficial as we gather this morning. And I'm not just thinking about our church right here, but churches all across the world today as they gather for worship on a Sunday or if it's a Saturday night. But there is something very powerful as we gather for worship. And uh, consider this an, an excerpt from the U, this USA Today article from 2016. I did put it on the screen. In 2016, Harvard professor Tyler J. Vanderweel and journalist John Sniff wrote a USA Today op-ed entitled, Religion May Be a Miracle Drug. The piece begins, if one could conceive of a single elixir to improve the physical and mental health of millions of Americans at no personal cost, what value would our society place on it? The authors go on to outline the mental and physical health benefits that are correlated with regular religious participation. For most Americans, going to church reduced mortality rates by 20 to 30% over a 15-year period. Research suggests that, the, that those who regularly attend services are more optimistic, have lower levels of depression, are less likely to commit suicide, have a greater purpose in life, are less likely to divorce, and are more self-controlled. So there you have the benefits of coming out to church on Sunday morning have been scientifically proven. That's a pretty fascinating article there. And as we get into that, maybe some of that will make sense to us a little bit more. But the reality is some churches are really healthy and then some churches are, yes, kind of maybe toxic. That's true. There can be some toxic churches. The thing is a biblically grounded, Christ-centered, grace-filled, family-oriented church can be a powerful thing. Biblically grounded, Christ-centered, grace-filled, family-oriented church can be an incredibly powerful thing. And we're going to consider that this morning. The ABCs, though, how about the ABCs of just toxic religion? Because sometimes we, we, we hear that word religion and, and, and it, it can, can kind of be seen in a toxic way, right? So, well, there is some truth to that. Think about this. False teaching can make religion toxic, right? Like, there are, the, the, just the term religion, when you think about it, is so... Uh, kind of generic, like there's all kinds of religions out there. You can worship all kinds of gods, right? And so I was thinking about that. There's only one true religion, and that can sound very narrow, right? We can say there's only one true religion. That can sound very narrow, but okay, I'll live with that. If I go to the doctor and I have cancer, and the doctor says, I have all these medicines and all these drugs, but your cancer, there's only one drug that can treat your cancer. I'm like, give me that drug. Give me that, give me that treatment, you know, right? I don't, that's narrow. I don't care. I want the one that can save my life. And there's only one who can truly save your life, and that is Jesus Christ. And so there's all kinds of false religion and false teaching out there today that makes religion toxic. And even within the context, uh, in the context of Christian, Christian churches, there's a lot of false teaching. Like the prosperity gospel is very destructive, and there's all kinds of things in that sense. How about this legalism can make the Bible toxic? Like legalism can certainly make the Bible toxic. And we talked today about so many that are deconstructing from their faith and they, were, they call, considered themselves Christians and now they no longer do. And in a lot of those stories, when I hear their stories, I think they didn't grow up hearing the true message of the gospel of grace. They heard a legalistic message that was based on what they did, based on judgment, guilt, and shame. And eventually that weight got too heavy to carry and they just said, yeah, I'm tired. I'm tired of being a Christian, if that's what a Christian is. They didn't really understand it. And one of the things we'll see fascinatingly today is that the Bible is actually a book of freedom. Like there's freedom in God's word. And that might sound kind of interesting to stop and think about. And then thirdly, spiritual abuse can make the church toxic. 
Like maybe you heard the, the big news that there was this big viral video that went out a couple weeks ago. And a pastor came up on stage one Sunday and admitted to his whole congregation, big church in Indiana, that yes, 20 years earlier he had committed adultery. And it went on too long and he was sorry. But it was 20 years ago and he was sorry and he had repented and the church all applauded him, wrapped their arms around him. And maybe that was bad optically in how they responded because what happened next was this woman came up out of the audience with her husband and told the true story. Told the story that he didn't tell, that she was only 16. It went on for seven years. And it was a lot darker than that. I won't go into the whole story. He has since resigned. And the whole thing became very messy. But the reality is there's, there's too much of that in the church. Spiritual abuse and sexual abuse makes the church toxic. And people walk away from the church because of that very reason. The fascinating thing in that story is here's this, this girl that stayed in the church. And said she lived with the guilt and shame for years that she couldn't speak up because it would tarnish the church or tarnish the name of God. She had to protect them both. Toxic. Here's our key verse today. It's in James chapter 1. We're going to talk about the truth about religion. James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God. The Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from world and we'll see today that while religion can be toxic also there is something that can help us detoxify as we gather for worship on a Sunday morning as we embrace a pure and an undefiled uh, religion as it is defined here for us by James today we will see that part of the the issue here is how do you define the word religion that's the key right we talk about religion. What do you mean by religion? What does that really mean? Because as I said, there are so many false religions. You can worship Allah and Buddha and, and Joseph Smith and so many other individuals. There's only one true religion, and that's Christ. There's only one pure and, and undefiled religion, and that is the one built on Christ or Christianity. Here's the reality. So religion defined here for us this morning. In the Strongs, this is what it means, ceremonial observance, religion, worshiping. And you only find this word, really, this word three times, I believe, and then the similar word, there's like two words that are closely related here, and you find them like seven times. And in fact, you know what's fascinating is never are these words ever associated to our worship of God. Like never does he call our worship, our worship as we gather on Sunday morning, never does he call it religion or religious in nature. But it is true, there are some churches today that have a much more ceremonial kind of worship, right? They have more liturgical, more responsive readings, you know, standing and sitting and things that you do week after week kind of repetitiously. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's all kinds of, of worship. Some, have, some churches have stained glasses and big organs and we have a very simple kind of, I guess we get together and pray, read the word, proclaim the word. Hopefully have some meaningful conversations before and after. We have a very simple kind of service here. But the reality is, as we get into this, we'll see what, what, what regardless of what your ceremony and your worship looks like, what is a pure and undefiled religion? Of course, we always say, right, we always say this, 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 this phrase that it's not about religion, it's about a relationship. We say that all the time, right? Like Jesus didn't come to start another religion, he came to invite us into a personal relationship. And that's incredibly true. And even what James has to say today will back that up. 
He, he will even support that very thesis for us. I've often said it this way, right? Religion is man reaching up to God, working our way to God. That's religion. Christianity is God reaching down to us. It's, it's God reaching down through the cross trying to save us. And that's the reality. And so the question becomes, why does James use this concept? And why does James talk about religion? And why does he talk about the ceremonial observance? Well, it is fascinating when you consider the fact that he's writing to a bunch of Jews. These are the Jews of the dispersion from Pentecost. And these are the Jews that, understand, they have grown up with, right, 603 ceremonial and sacrificial laws. They've grown up with the Ten Commandments. They've, they've got all the all the pomp and circumstance, right, of the feast days and the Sabbaths and all that, all that wonderful stuff they grew up with. That's all in their history. And so it is to them that James comes along and says, here's the reality, we'll put it this way, right? The Jews who had all the pomp and circumstance of the Jewish law with its feast days needed to understand what genuine worship was. Like you, you had to know that it was more than just going through the motions, right? Like all of that stuff had a significance, all of that, all those feast days and all the laws and everything, they pointed to something grander and greater and that's where your worship needed to be. And for a lot of the Jewish people, they didn't really have that genuine worship, did they? Like their hearts were, the Bible says their hearts were far from God. And they honored him with their lips, but their hearts were far from God. So James says then that a pure religion will love God, serve others, and hate sin. Will love God, serve others, and hate sin. And so to translate this into the 21st century in regards to any church within evangelical Christianity today, regardless of our ceremony and the order of our service, what ultimately defines our worship as pure and undefiled? That's the question we will ask and answer this morning. What defines our worship? And can I just say up front, when I look at our church, I think this describes our church. I think we nailed what we're going to talk about today. I just think it defines who we are as a church and what needs to define really, truly any Christian church. Here's our big idea. A pure religion before God embraces a personal relationship with God. A pure religion before God embraces a personal relationship with God. And what sets Christianity, again, apart from any other religion, is that we are invited into a personal relationship with God. With the, with, the, with the God of our religion in a way that you don't find with the other religions of the world. There's a very personal relationship we are invited into. So, four evidences of a pure religion and an undefined worship. The first one, a little longer, and then the next three will go pretty quick. But James 1, 19, here's what it says again. Thanks uh, for reading this earlier, Wayne. Here we are again. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Here's the first evidence for us this morning. Pure religion possesses the anger of God. It possesses the anger of God. And we'll see this a little bit today as, as we're going to kind of look at the implications that are made that maybe, like he says one thing, but it's implying something else. And this is the implication. Pure religion possesses the anger of God because, right, he says the anger, see, he says the anger of man won't produce the righteousness of God. So what will produce the righteousness of God? The anger of God. Think about that. The anger of God produces the righteousness of God. Can you think of a... Of a an instance in the Bible where we see this real clearly? Anybody? When I tell you, you're going to hit yourself over the head, right? 
That's the gospel. At the cross, God poured out His wrath on sin so that we could be what? Made righteous. The anger of God produces the righteousness of God. But God shows His love for us, Romans 5, 9. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. God poured out His wrath on Jesus who bore His sins, bore our sins in His body on the tree so that we could be, what? For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. God works out His righteousness in our life by pouring out His anger towards sin on Jesus on the cross. Pretty powerful. And there are probably other instances we can see that in Scripture, but it is most vividly seen right in this instance. The truth is, at times in the church, we can get angry about things that are really inconsequential. 1995, I'm, I'm in Wisconsin as a, as a youth, working with youth as a kind of a youth pastor, and we have the kids one Sunday, they're going to sing. And we got one or two pews filled up with young people that are going to go up front and sing in the service. And an old, older guy comes in, <clears throat> I had a good relationship with him. He comes in, he got really mad that Sunday. You know why? Somebody was sitting in his seat. And I mean, he was really mad. It's like, that's my pew. I, sit right, I, can, I still know where that seat was. The end of the pew right here is where he sat. And all these kids are taking up that pew and he was upset. And it's, it's, it's humorous and it's sad at the same time and it's all too common. Common because what? We get angry about things that really don't matter. And we don't get angry about the things that should matter. So two things we should be angry about. We should be angry about sin, Right? Like, here's our, here's our key verse for this whole series. Your boasting is not good, Paul wrote to the Corinthians. Do, not, do you not know that a little leaven, leavens the whole lump, or a little sin affects the whole body, right? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened, like you really are pure and holy in Christ. So get the sin out of your life. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate in the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And in this Corinth church, they were very spiritually immature, and they, they were kind of like boasting, well, there's this great sin, but it's not in our small group. It's, you know, that's, that's Harold's small group over there. It's not our small group, right? Or it's Wayne's small group or whatever. And he's like, hey, you need to be angry about sin. You need to take sin serious. It is a serious thing. Sin is deceptive, destructive, and deadly. It certainly is. And a little yeast spreads throughout the whole loaf and affects the entire loaf. A little sin spreads throughout the body and affects the entire body. It kills relationships, opportunities, and potential, hopes and dreams. Sin is deadly. So I was listening to a podcast this week. And uh, they talked about a book called Sex and Culture by Oxford, I think I put it up here, by, um, by Oxford social anthropologist J.D. Unwin, written in 1934. And I got a summary here, <clears throat> a few summary points that came by Kurt uh, Durston on his blog, Thoughts About God, Truth, and Beauty. Now, I don't share this. I don't share this to discourage us this morning, but to give us about the dark reality of why we should be angry about sin. So just listen to some of his, what he explains. Unwin examines the data from 86 societies and civilizations to see if there is a relationship between sexual freedom and the flourishing of cultures. 
What makes the book especially interesting is that we in the West underwent a sexual revolution in the late 1960s, 70s, and 80s, and are now in a position to test the conclusions he arrived at more than 40 years earlier. Number one, effective sexual constraints. Increased sexual constraints, either pre- or post-nuptial, meaning before or after marriage, always led to increased flourishing of a culture. Conversely, increased sexual freedom always led to the collapse of a culture three generations later. Number two, single most influential factor. Surprisingly, the data revealed that the single most important correlation with the flourishing of a culture was whether prenuptial chastity was required or not. It had a very significant effect either way. Three, highest flourishing of culture. The most powerful combination was prenuptial chastity coupled with absolute monogamy, Rationalist cultures that retained this combination for at least three generations exceeded all other cultures in every area, including literature, art, science, furniture, architecture, engineering, and agriculture. Only three out of the 86 cultures <laughs> studied ever attained this level. It kind cut, of cut, cut off on my screen, but uh, just fascinating. And then number four here, the effects of abandoning prenuptial chastity when strict prenuptial chastity was no longer the norm, absolute monogamy, deism, and rational thinking also disappeared within three generations. And I, I looked at that, that, that la about rational thinking. Look at where we're at in a country, our country today. Look at all the stories about just transgenderism and children and all that going on. Where's our rational thinking? Well, we followed this to a T. And, and it should make us angry. Sin should make us angry because it, and you see how just a little sin or just one sin in one area like this can just destroy a civilization because what does it do? It destroys the nuclear family. How many, how many single moms are there because of, you know, our, our sexual revolution? How many more divorces were there because of our, our attitude and, and thus again more single one-parent families? And it just destroys civilization. Unrestrained sin. So let me just say this to all the young people. When the Bible says, save sex for marriage, it knows what it's talking about. It's for your benefit. It's for our whole country's benefit. It really is. Hmm. We should also be angry about injustice. He kind of talks about that, right? About caring about the, the widow and caring about the orphan. And, and we should have an anger about injustice. In the Old Testament, God called out the Israelites for their empty religion, for, for their lips that worshipped Him, but, or, but their hearts were far from Him. Listen to what He says in Amos chapter 5.21. I hate, I despise your feasts. And they're doing the feasts that God required them to do. And He's like, I hate your feasts. And I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. The point of our worship is that it should be reflected in how we treat others and how we see the injustices around us in the world. As Jesus began his earthly ministry, right? Before he started his ministry and right again at the end of his ministry, what does he do? Twice, goes into the temple and drives out the money changers and drives out those who are buying or those who are selling the animal sacrifices there. And why was he so outraged? Because they were taking advantage of the people who had to come offer sacrifices. And he's like, yeah, that's not the way it works. 
He was angry at the injustice of what he saw. My house shall be a house of prayer, he says. Now here's where the justice issue gets challenging for us today as compared to what we read in the Bible. Because God called out Israel, and Israel was what? They were a nation state. And we're not a nation state. We're not in the same situation they were. In other words, Israel was, was both the church and the state government as one. That's not our situation today. So we can't like, just as the church today, stand up in our government and say, well, we have the answer to injustice. It's the gospel. If you just embrace the gospel. And, and, and the truth is the world hates the gospel. So we stand up and we say, we've got an answer to injustice, whether it's racial or, or whether it's trafficking or whether it's whatever we come up with and we identify the injustice. The answer is the gospel. The world finds the gospel offensive. And at the same time, this then becomes a highly politicized debate in our churches even. So I have three insights that God gave me as I was rolling this around in my mind. Insight number one, most injustice today is rooted in the government systems that are supposed to fight against it. That's really the truth. You raise money and send it to a country, to people in need, you don't even know if the people are going to get that money because there's, there's corrupt governments that take that money. And the people never see it. And so we're here and we want, to, we want to do things and we want to help the less fortunate. And yet that's what we're fighting against. And it's very hard. Thankfully, there are ministries like Samaritan's Purse that go into places like Ukraine, other places, and tangibly get the help to where it needs to go. And thankfully, we, like last Christmas, can raise $1,000 and send it to kids in Bolivia to help them celebrate Christmas. Those are the tangible things that we can do. But it's not always so easy today. Here's another insight that struck me. Like society and culture are not our conscience, the Holy Spirit is. And I think this is part of why it becomes highly politicized in our churches today. Is What happens is, is if the news media decides to, to make a big deal out of something and blow it up on TV, then, then most of our churches today oftentimes run around and say, oh yeah, we agree with you. Like you're right, that's an issue. That's a serious injustice issue. And we, rally, and we support whatever... The news media, the society, the culture puts out there. But they're not our conscience. We need discernment to say, what are the true issues of injustice and how do we deal with them? And is potentially the news media or the people in power using that? Because I think many times governments and people in power use these issues to divide and conquer their people. They get power out of it. They get, they get elected out of it. If they can keep these problems in front of us instead of having them solved... You took the church with the gospel, you could eradicate most of the injustice issues in the world pretty quickly. But we can't have that. And there's, there's a sense of power that we would lose if we did that. Is there ever an ulterior motive in our news media or what we see on TV as they're telling us what we should be concerned about? What about the Holy Spirit telling us the issues? And to that end, like, really, what are two of the greatest injustices in the world today? Human trafficking and abortion. How often do you hear the news media screaming about those two issues that are so incredibly, horrifically terrible? They're not outraged about those things, but they're outraged about the things that they think can manipulate a society and continually give them more power. So I think that's really an important one to stop and consider. And then number three, when society defines the issue, they offer the solutions. And I've shared this before. The answer to all injustice is the gospel. Two weeks ago, we talked about that woman. Remember that woman of the city, the prostitute, who goes in 
And Simon, is, Simon the Pharisee is just so outraged. This woman will walk into his house and using her hair and her tears and some perfume begins to wash the feet of Jesus. And she's washing the feet of Jesus and Simon is just so outraged. And I thought about that story again and I thought about, you know, one of the most humbling things for Simon in that moment. It could have been humiliating, but if he responded right, it could have been humbling. Because what, what happens at the end of that story is Jesus tells her to go in peace after calling out Simon for his judgmental attitude, tells her to go in peace. And you know what would have been so incredibly epic and humbling in that moment if the woman had stood up and before she left had looked across the room to Simon and said, Simon, I'm really sorry that you don't get the grace of God. I'm sorry you don't get the grace of God. I hope you get the grace of God. But I want you to know I forgive you for your judgmental attitude because God has forgiven me. Man, how could I not forgive you? And walked out that door. That could, have, that could have humiliated Simon or it could have been very humbling for him depending on how he received it. That's the power of the gospel. That's the most incredible moment of grace in that whole story. That's what the world needs. And we have to let people know that that is ultimately the answer. I found this fascinating story. Uh, writer Al Hasu tells the story. I don't know who wrote it. I grew up in an affluent community that was something like 94% white. During high school, I went to a Christian leadership program at camp in the woods. One day, we had a canoe race. My team was in a canoe with two paddles, but another canoe was given only one paddle. Another didn't get any paddles. They had to use their hands. And another group didn't even have a canoe. They had an old leaky rowboat. The race started, and my canoe zipped across the lake, racing smoothly. I looked back and noticed that the other teams were behind, far behind. The folks in the rowboat had found a tree branch that were trying to use an oar to pull them along. My canoe won the race, and my team sat and watched, waiting for the rest to come in. Afterward, we had a group time to debrief. My team was happy that we had won. Some of the others laughed about the accommodations they had made to try to compete. And some were just frustrated and mad at the exercise. The counselors asked my winning team, why didn't you go back and help the others? I didn't get it, I said. I thought we weren't supposed to. We were given two paddles, so we, were, we used them and won the race. I figured there was a reason that the others had disadvantages and they were supposed to figure out what to do. It wasn't until the following summer when I went on an urban ministry trip that I started to get it. We were in an underprivileged community struggling with poverty, drugs, crime. Leaders gave us some background about the realities of redefining and how structural systems caused injustice. And I realized in a very visceral way that this was not right. This was not what God intended for the world. That dislocation and displacement in a community just 10 miles from my suburban home helped me change. There's a powerful lesson there. There are a lot of people that think we need to hear that in the church a little more. And I, and I think that's a true story. I also think, as I said earlier, sometimes it's the governments that are driving people in those positions. And so we're fighting not just the injustices there, we're fighting governments that are not allowing us to really go in and exact change. And, of course, the society will not accept the gospel. Again, a pure religion before God embraces a personal relationship with God. And, and, and a personal, we'll have the anger of God. We will beat with the anger of God and we will fight for the things that he would fight for. James chapter 1, verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face, excuse me, in a mirror. 
For he looks at himself and goes away and once forgets what he was like. But the, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So first, we'll possess the anger of God. Secondly, we will love the word of God. A pure religion is going to love the word of God. It's just going to love the word of God. That'll set apart a pure and true religion, to love the true word of God. And, and while every religion has their religious writings, there is no religious writing like the Bible. Nothing like it at all. The Bible is said to be the living word. It's alive and it's breathing. In fact, the Bible says that Jesus is the Word. He is the Logos. So factor that in. So we've got like the, the Word is alive and the Word is Jesus, the Logos. And how does all this factor into our understanding of the Bible? Now, now I just think it is really, 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 really fascinating. And it's also fascinating that the Bible is written by human individuals, by men. And by, by, by men, not women. All men wrote the Bible, but it's written by these men who have a, a unique personality and a, a unique temperament and experiences and passions. And they're just unique individuals, unique gifts. And yet it's inspired, divinely inspired, every word by the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 4, 12, 13. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So just note this reality check. The word is alive. The word is alive. There is something fascinating about the word as it is alive. And pure religion loves the word. And I was thinking this week about what makes our church tick. Like, like, we're a church, we have our doctrine, we have our theology, and everybody here doesn't agree on every single point of theology or doctrine, but you know what makes this church tick is we all love the word. We love it, and we want to apply it, and we want to see it lived out. We are a church that loves the word. We certainly are. Just sit in our Sunday school class every Sunday, and you'll see that. But the word is alive. Again, what does he say here? Note what's implied. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. There's two implied realities here, right? Be doers of the word, not hearers only. Here's the, the two implied things. To do the word, I must read the word. Right? He says, make sure you don't just read the word and not do it, but that implies that I what? That I read the word. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit the orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep yourself unstained from the word. And so to do that, I have to read it first. I have to read the word to put it into practice. And that sounds like that first point again, right? Like, like yeah, keep yourself unstained from the word, hate sin and visit the orphans and widows in their affliction and, and, and be angry about injustice. We get that from the word of God. It's the idea where the scriptures travel the 12 inches from my head to my heart. And I put them into practice. Why I put application questions often with the sermon I did today. That you can take later and read through and unpack and try to unpack the message in your own life. But here's the second implication. To do the word, I must love the word. Like, really? Like, if I'm going to do the Word, I've got to read it. But to read it, I've got to love it. It's like, I've got to love God's Word. And the more I love it, the more I'll read it. And the more I read it, the more I'll put it into practice. 
Psalms 119 is a psalm that's all about the Word of God. It uses six different terms to describe the Word of God. Listen to what it says here. Psalms 119.16, I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your Word. Verse 24, your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. And verse 47, for I find my delight in your commandments which I love. About a dozen times in this chapter, he talks about loving the Word. We need to love the Word. We need to love the Word. But there there is something here that's really fascinating because we said that the Word of God is alive, right? And then along comes James to add to that understanding of the Word being alive. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted Word which is able to save your soul. The implanted Word, and so the Word is alive in me. Like the word is alive, but even greater than that, the word is alive in my life. This word implanted is a a fascinating word. It literally means engrafted or implanted either by instruction or by nature. I think it's fascinating. You find the word not a lot of times, but like three times in in the gospel of Luke, it's used when the seed is sowed into the human heart. And there's like four seeds that are sowed and three of the, the seeds at least take root. One of them produces a great abundance of fruit and he talks about the implanted word, the word that is implanted in us and and to some degree takes root in us and actually becomes a part of us in a way I want to study out a little more because I didn't get to study this as much as I wanted but it's like it in some ways becomes a part of our identity and who we are. I found this commentary and I forgot to write down which commentator said this. So I'll have to look this up. But here's what he says. Receive with meekness the engrafted word. The term is peculiar to this place and means innate in its first intention. If taken so, the innate word will be Christ himself formed in us, the logos coming alive in us. It's Galatians 4.19. My little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. There's something about the word being planted in my life, taking root and producing an incredible fruit. The word is alive in me. And in the end, the Bible is not an obligation or a duty. It's a natural part of who we are. We love to read it because we, this Christ is our, our very life and we just love to read what reinforces who we are. We'll see more of this in a moment. A pure religion before God embraces a personal relationship with God and the scriptures just reinforce continually that relationship I have with the Logos, with the word that is living and alive. James 1.25, here's a third evidence, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. I was thinking this week about the, the Bible. If I said, when you hear the Bible, what's the first word that comes to your mind? And we might say something like, well, instruction or wisdom or obedience or teach or whatever. And I wonder how many would say freedom. Like the first thought that comes to mind when you hear the word Bible is freedom. But that's exactly what James says. Pure religion experiences freedom in Christ. Because that's what this word is. It's the perfect law of liberty. The perfect law of liberty. Again, understand this in the context as he's sharing this with these Jewish believers, right? And they understand the law like they've got the law, like 613 laws. They know what the law is. 
And I don't know if they would have ever looked at the law and said, well, it was a law of freedom. It was like a law of obligation, like we have to do this. this is, the law was always the vehicle of their faith. How did they express faith? They believed that if they kept the law, God would give them grace. God would save them. Today, how do we express our faith? Not necessarily through the law, but simply through believing Christ went to the cross and died. We believe and we just receive. And so we have these two vehicles of faith here. So think about what the law meant to the Jewish people and what he's saying here, because I think this will be pretty powerful if you can just follow this thought through with me. It's pretty powerful. I was thinking about the law of Moses is the Torah. It's the first five books of the Bible. There's a specific law there. And so he's, this is what the Jewish people are aware of. Now I was thinking about what is the purpose of the law, like that law of Moses. What is the purpose of that law? Here's a quick test. Don't answer out loud. You tell me. The purpose of the law was to make us more holy, to bless us, to point out our sin and point us to the cross or all of the above. So you write down the answer, and I'll tell you. And you can think that through just briefly. What's the, and, and follow, this will make sense in a minute. You'll see where I'm going with this. So the answer really is, and this might surprise some, but it is C, it's to point out our sin and point us to the cross. Because like, somebody might say, well, doesn't the law make me holy? No, the, the law actually says you're guilty. The law condemns you. Because no one can keep the law in its perfection. Somebody might say, well, what about the law? Isn't the law a blessing? Well, as a system that makes us right with God, as a vehicle of our faith, no, the law is not a blessing. Now, if I don't lie, if I don't cheat, if I don't have an affair, if I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, yeah, that'll be a blessing. But the law as a unit, as a system, is ultimately a curse. Here's how Paul said it. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. It is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. So, yes, there's blessings if I live out the various aspects of the law, but why is it a curse? Because I can't live them out perfectly, entirely. I will always miss the mark time and again when I try to live a life of holiness through the law. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. So there it is. The law is definitely, as a unit together, it's a curse. He became a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. But here's what he goes on to say, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And here's what he's saying that we need to kind of grasp our, our, our hand around, is that this right here, not just the first five books of the Bible, this, all 66 books of the Bible, this is a book of freedom. Because this takes the first five books, this takes the Torah and everything in it and points us to who Christ, who fulfilled the law, who set us free. who is our very life. All 66 books of the Bible are, are in reality. It's a law of liberty, a law of freedom. When I embrace it, when I live out the Word of God. Pretty fascinating. We were talking the other night at men's Bible study about the law, right? Because we can come along and we can think uh, like, <clears throat> well, yeah, you know, I've never murdered anybody. And then what did Jesus say? Jesus said, well, you know, if you got angry at somebody, you murdered them. You violated the law. And it's like, oh, so we see how impossible it is to really keep the law. And uh, we were talking about where, where he goes on there and he says that if your eye offends you, 
pluck it out. If your hand offends you, chop it off. And I said, you know what he's saying there? He's saying that there's two options when you struggle with sin. Option number one is if you struggle with sin is you can either chop off your hand or you can trust me. And, and, and if we were to go the other route, we'd all be blind today. We'd all pluck out our eyes. We'd all be blind in here, right? But that's not the point. The point is Christ is the answer. Christ is the one who will fulfill the law within us. Pretty powerful. Pretty powerful to stop and think about the word of God being a law of liberty. And that led me to one other question. Like, I was thinking about those ten stone, t- ton, ten stone tablets that Moses had, right? And, and, and honestly, they'd be pretty heavy, right? He was walking down the mountain with those. There had to be some weight to that. And maybe stop and ask this question, how heavy is your Bible? Like, how heavy is your Bible? And I wondered, in this sense, do you carry your Bible or does your Bible carry you? Like, is your Bible a burden? Like, oh, God says I have to wait until I'm married to have sex. God says I have to, you know, I have to, you know, do my taxes, you know, right. God says I shouldn't lie or cheat or steal or get angry. Oh, it's a burden. No, it's not a burden. It's freedom. It's freedom. Do you carry your Bible or does your Bible carry you? Is your Bible just a burden or obligation? Or does your Bible, all 66 books, point you to the one who has set you free? So the law of liberty then is the word of God. All 66 books of the Bible, that's the law of liberty. I think that's a pretty amazing concept and I've never really unpacked that before this week. The law of liberty is the word of God. Today's big idea again, a pure religion embraces, a pure religion before God embraces a personal relationship with God. Like I have this personal relationship and he has set me free. Finally, last one, James 1, 23 again. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away at once and forgets what he was like. So a pure religion ultimately finds its identity in Christ. It finds its absolutely identity in Christ. And here's the imagery, here's the illustration that James ultimately uses, is that the word of God is actually like a mirror. So he says, there's an individual who goes up and and he looks in the mirror and he sees what he looks like and then he walks away and he forgets. Like like Dom goes in, he looks in the mirror and he's got his outfit on to go work at uh, Little Caesars, right? And then he walks away and he's like, oh man, where do I work again? Is it Domino's or is it Pizza Hut or is it... He goes back to the mirror, oh yeah, it's Little Caesars, (laughs) But that's the word of God. Like you look in the word of God and you, you see Christ and you, you see your reflection. And, 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 and the person who hears the word but doesn't do it, you know, walks away and forgets what they look like, forgets who they are. That's the reality. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. There's this, this element of deceiving yourselves. I might have got these out. Okay, okay. What I do then comes out of who I am. Like being a doer of the word, what I do comes out of who I am. The Bible tells me who I am in Christ. Like I'm in Christ, I'm free in Christ, I'm forgiven, I'm holy, I'm righteous, I'm pure. I, this is who I am. So this is who I should, this is, how, this is why I should be angry about sin and angry about injustice and this is why I should, you know, just embrace the word. 
What I do comes out of who I am. And there's this sense again, right, where we, I might have got these out of order, right? Don't lie to yourself. Like, there's this thing he says here for, he, for uh, how, does, how does this go again? Um, I'm going to back up here and find the verse. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So it's like, don't lie to yourself. Like, like, and then that can be taken a couple of ways. Like, you can look at the word and read it, and you can walk away and think, okay, I read it. Good, you know, I'm good. It's like, well, no, you can't just read it. You have to do it has to affect who you are. Don't deceive yourself by thinking reading it is enough. You need to put it into practice. And at the same time, though, you deceive yourself because, like, this is who you are. Like, look in the Scriptures, see who you are, find who you are in Christ, embrace who you are in Christ, and then live that way. And don't deceive yourself. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person is... This person's religious is worthless. I thought this was fascinating too. Look what he says here. He talks about don't, don't let your heart be deceived, right? And I thought about what it says. We've gone through this, right, pretty extensively about the role of the heart today. We have this new creation heart in Christ. Remember this verse in Jeremiah 17? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The heart is, like we're born with this heart. As, as we're born dead to God, we're born with this deceitful, wicked, evil heart. But, but note, note the difference of what James says. James now says to the believer, don't let your heart be deceived. It's no longer that my heart is deceitful. Now I have the heart of God. Now it's like, don't let your heart be deceived. Know who you are in Christ. Know, know who the scriptures say that you are. Look into the word of God. See your reflection in Christ and then that's what you do. What I do comes out of who I am. Get a good look at yourself in God's word this week. So just note the difference there. The deceitful heart versus the heart that is deceived. And there is a difference there. Speaking again to our identity change that we have a new heart today. In Christ. Again, a pure religion before God embraces a personal relationship with God. Let me give you four final applications. But what we learned today a pure religion possesses the anger of God, a pure religion loves the Word of God, a pure religion experiences freedom in Christ, and a pure religion finds its identity in Christ. Four simple applications. Number one, holiness is not legalism. Right? Holiness is not legalism and we're told repeatedly in here how we should live right we should put off the wicked things the, of the flesh and put off sin and it's not legalism when we live a holy life right so we don't want to be legalistic and judgmental and all of that but living a holy life living a life that is set apart is not legalistic here's what it says therefore put a, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word Religion that is pure and undefiled before, the God, before God the Father is this, to keep oneself unstained from the world. That's living a life of holiness. That's not legalism. That's just who we are in Christ. And then, and then next one, before we do, we must be. Like, I hope you saw that in the passage. Before we must do, we must be. Before we, we do, we must look into the Bible and see who we are in Christ. 
It's kind of like the Mary and Martha syndrome, right? Remember Mary and Martha? And, and, and Jesus is there and they're all gathered and Jesus is teaching and Martha is up busy, 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 serving, serving, serving. And, Jesus, and Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus listening and Martha gets really frustrated and anxious and, and, and says, Jesus, you tell Mary to help me. I'm doing this all by myself. And, and of course, Jesus said, hey, she's chosen the better thing because she was being... Martha was doing. It's not wrong to do, but why did, why did Martha get angry in the situation? Because she, 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 didn't, she, she didn't be first. If we be first, if we connect with Christ, if we find our strength in Christ, we said it a couple weeks ago, you, know, you won't be so anxious, and then you can go out and do the things you need to do. Before we can do, we must be, right? And the more we be, the more we will do. Like the more that we just be in Christ, be in the moment, the more we just take in the scriptures and let them saturate our soul, then the more we will go out and do. Saturate yourself in God's word and let it just motivate you to go out and do the things God wants you to do. And then you'll be doing the things that God really wants you to do and not just the things you want to do or the things you think God wants you to do. Somebody asked me that yesterday. How do I know when I'm hearing these voices if it's God or me? I hear, I hear really good things, like, how do I know which is the difference? And I'm like, we all struggle with that. We all do. I do. It's got to be with God, and he'll help you find clarity there. And then one last passage here. Besides this, you know the time, the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Wake from your sleep, he says. He goes on, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness and in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And I thought about this and something here that maybe just to scare me or not, but, but here's the point. Being woke today, we talk, all of us talk about being woke. Being woke is not the same as being awake. We're called to be awake. And you laugh about that. You know, I thought of this. I, this is a thought I had, and I had it in my notes. And literally, I'm, I'm not kidding you. The next day, I'm on my YouTube feed, and I get all these different things and suggestions, and this podcast popped up that said just this very thing. We're not supposed to be awake, but awake. I'm like, that was kind of spooky. It's like... Man, did they get in my thoughts? You know, it's like, uh, and it was an, an excellent, it was an excellent, excellent, that's where I found that whole study that I shared earlier about sex and culture and all those civilizations founded in that. Yeah, we're not supposed to be woke, but we are supposed to be awake, angry at sin, angry at injustice, walking in close fellowship with Christ. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth about religion. Thank you that it is, it's about a personal relationship with you and whatever our worship looks like in our various churches, however liturgical it is or isn't, whatever the order of service is or isn't, may we understand what it means, what a pure and undefiled religion looks like. May we understand that. May we know that it just goes back to a embracing this personal relationship we have with you, that the implanted word has been planted in my life. It wants to grow in me. It wants to take root in me. It wants to form Christ in me for your glory. Let us do that this week. Open our eyes to see the world around us. Open our eyes to see inside of us. Help us walk for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen and amen and amen.